0: Folks, good morning. How's everybody doing? Thanks again for uh, joining us on the uh, sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival. It's kind of amazing it's been that long. Um, I've been through all six of them, and as Evan said yesterday, this is always a a fun show, and we uh, promise an action-packed 55 minutes now. Sorry for the late start. Uh, Just the housekeeping duties. Um, Been reminded to let you all know that after this, there'll be uh, lunch. We have the food trucks on the West Mall hope it's uh, not too muggy out there for y'all. Um, so feel free to do that. Uh, turn your phones either off, and by that we really mean uh, on silent and tweet throughout this and use the hashtag uh, WTF, I'm just kidding, uh, TTF. But I'm sure there'll be some WTF, you know, um, responses or thoughts or opinions uh, from the crowd or from our panelists. So um, 35, 40 minutes of uh, me engaging with these gentlemen, asking some questions, and then we'll open it up uh, for audience questions, if you, uh, I'll give you a heads up a couple minutes before that happens, and you just start lining up, and then uh, we'll go from there. It's pretty easy. Uh, the topic is how safe is the border really? Um, pretty boring and light conversation, obviously, because that's not at all in the news. Um, but uh, we couldn't have a better panel because these gentlemen um, know the border, they know Mexico, they know the state, they know the politics of it. Um, they might not agree on everything, but um, again. Um, They'll be respectful of everybody's opinions, and we ask that you all do the same during questions and comments. So let me just do a quick introduction, and then we'll get started. I'll start um, from uh, y'all's left and then work, work down. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, consul uh, Gonzalez Gutierrez has served as a general consul in Mexico, uh, in Austin, since 2015. Uh, he's also served in the Mexican Foreign Service since 1987, and he most recently served as the consul general of Sacramento. Uh, so he brings a wealth of knowledge about border states and the uh, Mexican popula- population in those areas. Uh, not, a, not a bad transition to go from California to Texas if you're going to talk about the uh, the Mexican immigrant population. Um, in October, Mr. Gonzalez joined Austin City leaders in calling for federal immigration offices to end their presence in Travis County jails. Um, and he said earlier just the, earlier this week that Texas shouldn't consider immigration status when a person applies for a driver's license. He, uh, the consul of some other... Some other uh, People in this position are a little bit uh, more diplomatic, but the Consul's obviously uh, not afraid to wade into controversial issues, especially immigration in Travis County, so we'll get to that. Um, Sitting next to him is Mayor Leeser from El Paso, Texas, which in my opinion is the best border town uh, in Texas, United States. I have a a bias, but I I knew my, my friends over here would get a kick out of that. He was first elected in 2013 and previously Excuse me. And he uh, he served more than 10 years as owner and president of Hyundai El Paso. If anybody is from El Paso, you recognize his mom plugging him on the radio commercials there saying, my Oscar is such a good boy. Um, And he um, is also, he also serves on the Center, uh, the University Medical Center for El Paso Children's Hospital Foundation Board. And uh, Mayor Lisa uh, recently entered the fray over the Black Lives Matter movement when he uh, defended his police chief, not for comments he made when he called the movement uh, a radical hate group but for um, sort of chastising city leaders for not reaching out to the police chief on why he made those comments. It's not necessarily an immigration issue but it just shows that El Paso is, is very diverse as is Brownsville and Laredo and the other, and the other <coughs> excuse me, border cities so they kind of play into the immigration debate and the public safety at large. In the middle is Representative Tam Parker from uh, Flower Mound. <laughs> excuse me, he's represented House District 63 since 2007, serves as the chairman of the House Investments and Financial Services Committee, and sits on the redistricting ways and means and state and federal power and responsibility committees. You're not too busy there, are you? Um, And he's also the uh, current chairman of the Republican uh, Party Caucus, and he was a co-author of House Bill 11, which, um, as some of you all know, was one of the main mechanisms to send about $800 million, or a good chunk of that, uh, down to the border for more DPS security. Sitting next to him is uh, former Ambassador Tony Garza, who served in that capacity from 2002 to 2009. Uh, Before that, he was also the Texas Texas Secretary of State and Chairman of the Railroad Commission. Uh, He's currently counsel in Mexico City for the Office of White and Case. And earlier this month, Mr. Garza said of Republican uh, presidential candidate Donald Trump, I think in terms of his positions on trade, immigration, temperament, and tone, I think he's done a very poor job as a Republican nominee. Again, Mr. Trump is likely to come up in this conversation. Um, And without further uh, delay here, Congressman Vela, who is very famous for a comment in a letter that he wrote to Mr. Donald Trump saying that he's a racist and he can take the border wall and shove it up. You guys can fill that in, so (laughs) we can get the applause. (laughs) Um, But as he said said earlier, uh, he's also from Brownsville, so he knows these issues. has represented Texas Congressional District Thirty-Four since twenty uh, thirteen. He sits on the House Ag and Homeland Security Committees, and he's the co- uh, co-chairman of the Congressional Border Caucus. So, uh, big round of applause for our panelists. Then we'll get going. Thank you so much. So, I'm going to uh, I'm going to start with uh, with Chairman Parker because the, the the panel is you know how safe is the border. Um, and I think that there's one state agency that's been tasked with uh, defending that border, and we're talking about the Texas Department of Public Safety, who uh, received a a lion's share of the $800 million in border security. But um, Chairman, I want want to ask you, because there's some people, uh, lawmakers, that are not satisfied with the response that they've uh, had from the state agency on what that money is being spent on, if uh, there are more apprehensions, if the price of dope is going up, which means they're catching more. So do you think that you have had uh, an adequate response from Texas Department of Public Safety when you ask or when your colleagues ask, what are you doing with $800 million in taxpayer money?
1: Thank you for the question. Absolutely I do. In fact, I just had uh, a briefing with Colonel McGraw uh, roughly a week ago with the members of the caucus and I'm very, very pleased with the work that DPS is doing. Uh, The men and women that serve in that capacity uh, never thought they'd be doing what they're doing today, uh, and they're really doing an amazing job. But the issue, from my perspective, is that, you know, we we still have issues around safety and security. And so, in my opinion, we need to continue to invest, continue to uh, support what we've done. You know, this last session, we talked about uh, a moment ago, HB 11 – Uh, What we did there, obviously, is put $840 million into securing the border, and that provided an additional 250 uh, officers, additional, uh, if you will, aerial support, additional technology, and so forth. And I think if you look at what's taking place, the number of apprehensions and so forth, uh, in my mind, are up. If you look at the uh, number of uh, unaccompanied uh, children that are coming across, uh, we all thought that that peak was hit back in 2014, but the reality is is that we still have uh, very comparable numbers here now in 2016. So the issue uh, in terms of the safety and security for everyone that uh, is associated with the border to me is of grave uh, grave concern and will be a major focus of the next session for for uh, legislators.
0: It's it's been it's been said by a lot of folks The last two years and you're right 2015 or 2014 is, is when the so-called crisis uh, hit its peak And I think uh, by the end of uh, or when the fiscal year the, the federal government's fiscal year numbers for 2016 come out We're going to see that those um, Numbers um, might be at that same level so you're right after a lull But the argument is that these are these are 11 and 12 year old children throwing their hands up and surrendering saying you know, my dad was killed by the Mara Sabatrucha in El Salvador, please help me. What, what, what's your response to, to people that say, why do you need more state police officers to greet children and women that are fleeing violence?
1: Well, look, I mean, first of all, you know, you're really trying to keep those uh, children safe, right? I mean, that's a big part of the, the, the puzzle is, uh, you know, my opinion, we've got magnets on that are, are bringing these kids, if you will, uh, to Texas, and we have an which, obligation. Which
0: of those, if you don't mind me, sorry Well,
1: I mean, I, I think there's a number of them, right? We could talk about that more here today. But but my my view is, is that we've got to make certain that we're keeping those uh, children safe, certainly that we have a humanitarian responsibility to take care of those kids. But, you know, my perspective on this whole broader discussion of the border is what does it mean to the individuals in Texas? What does it mean to the safety and security of Texas I think a lot of the lawlessness and challenges that we see with regard to uh, drug and cartel activity obviously comes across the border and up in the North Texas. It affects my district. It affects people of Texas broadly. And so, you know, that's my focus and the reason why we need to be aggressive in securing that border. And I think when you see the number of children that are coming across, you recognize all the more the importance of securing the border.
0: And and to the chairman's point, um, uh, according to the Migration Policy Institute, Dallas and Houston are in the top 10 of uh, immigrant populations, whether it's uh, authorized or not authorized or naturalized citizens. So there's an argument, you know, why, why do people away from the border have the same border security? But like he said, you know, I think those statistics reflect that a lot of people think that uh, it doesn't just stop at the border. But I'll shift to Congressman Congress and, and see if you want to respond. You're, you, that's your district. You go down military highway all the time. You see, you've seen the DPS officers. Do you think, uh, well, do you think your, your neighborhood or your area is unsafe? And do you think that money could be better spent somewhere else?
2: Well,
3: when, when they initially made the announcement, Um, the surge was obvious. We could see an increased number of uh, DPS troopers, but it seemed to have, you know, died down. And, of course, it's difficult for me because I have to travel back and forth to Washington, so I don't see it as much. Um, But I think when we talk about border security, we have to be uh, very careful about what we mean Um, because if, if what you're talking about are the cities... On the American side of the border, like Brownsville, Harlingen, McAllen, Laredo, El Paso, safe. I mean, uh, FBI crime statistics uh, prove that they're safer than many other parts of the state. In fact, uh, on average, um, those communities uh, have a violent crime rate for two hundred out of every three hundred, out of two two to three hundred, out of every hundred thousand residents. uh, um, uh, You know. Are, are involved in, 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 in cr- violent crimes, whereas in places like Odessa, um, you know, it's, the number shoots to 800 or so, right? There,
0: there are some people that contest those, those FBI reports, the Uniform Crime Reports, saying that they don't include a lot of, quote-unquote, border crimes, you know, extortion, and, you know, if I get kidnapped in El Paso and taken to Juarez, that might not make it on the stat sheet in the, in the United States. I mean, what do you say to the argument that those, in, those statistics don't tell the whole story?
3: Well, I live there, and a lot of, this, these, a lot of the people in this room live there, and I can say that you know I feel uh, really safe. Um, and and on the uh, on the other hand, um, having more law enforcement there. I mean, we, we we can always use help in terms of we all want to feel safer. And, and so I think there is an argument that increased law enforcement does help us um, do that. But I think from a broader perspective, when uh, when we're talking about the national debate about border security. Um, we can't overgeneralize uh, because border security can mean so many things. I mean, if you ask me, um, is the city of Brownsville safe? Uh, the, the, the statistics we just talked about prove it. Uh, the same thing with El Paso, the same thing with McAllen, right? Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, if you, if, if, if you ask me, um, are, the, are, the, are the towns on the other side of the border safe? Well, that kind of depends where you are. I mean, before 2010, in Ciudad Juarez and in Tijuana, I mean, things were really, really bad. I would argue probably a whole lot worse than they are in the state of Tamaulipas today, right? But now things have kind of shifted. And uh, the state of Tamaulipas and, and, and the towns of McAllen and Reynosa have State Department travel warnings, which, uh, you know, suggests that they are unsafe. And for those of us who have grown up in the border, Tony and I grew up in, in Brownsland and Matamoros, uh, coming back and forth between Brownsville and Matamoros was a a fact of life. Right. It's something we enjoyed. Uh, over the last three years, I've taken over almost 100 members of Congress and senators, uh, U.S. senators down to the border, you know, and they come from different parts of the country, and uh, the perceptions of the border are uh, what they read about or what they see on CNN and Fox News, and they come down, and when they see the vibrant culture, um, uh, you know, they, they, they visit Dr. Bailey's university where these students go to, the the fact that we've got a new medical school going, SpaceX, the right. ports, and all these sorts of things, they realize,
0: oh, it's not right. uh, what we read it's about. A, it's on the other side, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, speaking of Damalipas, there's a, a governor coming in that's uh, the first uh, yes. from the opposition party in, in more than, I think, in the, in the state's history, and we'll get to that uh, down the road. But uh, Ambassador, I was wondering if you want to weigh in since you're from the Valley. I mean, I know, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you pride yourself in, in being part of the Republican party and, and one of, uh, I guess, your minority as far as a Hispanic Republican down there, even though that's, that segment is growing in Texas. But uh, do, do you agree with the state's uh, buildup, you know, what you see going down when you go down to Brownsville? Well,
4: generally, I think where you have more law enforcement,
0: you're going to have, you create,
4: a, uh, I think, a more secure environment. But picking up on, on Congressman Vela's uh, point, uh, I, I think a lot of it is sort of situational. It does depend, depend where you are. I I prefer rather than focus entirely on safety to say safe, secure and efficient borders. Uh, because of the importance of the volumes of trade that move back and forth between our communities. And one of the things that I've seen whether, and, I, and I'll, I'll point to a place not on the Texas border, but San Diego, Tijuana. I don't know if anybody has seen that, that essentially a binational airport in uh, uh, Tijuana. And that is a remarkable testament to the value of coordination and, co- and cooperation between two countries and the state and federal governments. And I think that's really something that we should look at as the kind of model. And I point that out, and then I look at what has gone on in El Paso and Juarez, and at different times in Monterrey, which is a little off the border, where you have more developed economic interests. You have a community with more of a focus on having a safe environment or a secure environment to protect those economic interests. So to the extent that you have that integration and the efficiency part of the border so that trade can move back and forth, you create incentives for communities to focus on safety and security. But those, those incentives are best aligned when you have that cooperation between a Texas and a Mexico or a sister state. So it's very situational, but I think if, if you lose sight of the importance of trade, you're gonna remove one of the big incentives to safety and security in protecting those economic interests.
0: And um, I'm sure a lot of you all know, but the Laredo Customs District, which I think uh, begins just uh, just west of Laredo and goes all the, all the way down to Brownsville, that is the busiest inland port in the country. I mean, by by miles, El Paso is second, um, and it, I mean it's it's dwarfed uh, when you when you look at Laredo trade numbers. When
4: you think of uh, Laredo Nuevo, it feeds right into 35 and right into the heartland of America. It's, it, it's not simply a border phenomena. It's the growth that the entire state. Uh, experiences and a beneficiary of. So when you're putting those assets, whether they be on the border or along the routes, you're really you're talking about the economic interest. That that is, that is ultimately what drives the the, the movement.
0: Mary May, Lisa, um, you know better than I do. Than in Texas, you know we're we're blessed to have 1,254 miles of border. So what happens in Brownsville is different than what happens in El Paso. El Paso is a different climate, uh, different time zone. Um, so, uh, but you know, just, just across the river or the concrete <laughs> barrier that, you know, that serves as a river in some points. It's Ciudad Juarez, which was at, at the conversation, uh, you know, during uh, what was commonly referred to as, as the war from, you know, 08 to roughly 2011, 2012. Um, but El Paso remains statistically, as far as homicides and, and violent crimes went, one, one of the safest. And I think for that reason, it's been a little bit... Um, uh, shielded from this buildup, but DPS uh, did say a few months ago that they're going to start putting more, more troopers in that region. I just want just to ask you how, how you feel about that personally, um, and, you know, like I said, I was in El Paso uh, earlier this week, and on Wednesday, I was driving in from Hudspeth County, I see plenty of El Paso County sheriffs, I see DPS, I see Border Patrol, there's a CBP helicopter going overhead, and if, you know, if you go outside at the right time of day, you'll see Army helicopters going in and out of Fort Bliss. So the argument that you don't wanna militarize the border, I mean, that runs all those examples kind of run counter to that. So does El Paso have enough law enforcement as it is with all those agencies I mentioned, and could it use more, you know? Well, I think that
2: um, as we talk about the DPS, I think they, they, they have a great responsibility within the state of Texas. The $840 million that was allocated by the state, in my opinion, I feel it's a huge waste of money and a huge waste of resources. We really need to believe that how do we invest 840,000? How do we invest in our local communities and make sure that it's not we invest and then we pull away? How do we have a long-term goal? And I think that's by investing in local police officers, local departments, whatever the cities may need. And you're right, El Paso is one of the safest cities in the country, and we have, because we work together with CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, and we do work really close with our military, but it's, uh, we, we have a great relationship between the two countries, and to see what you were talking about, that we would have young children go through that experience, it's an experience that will never change in their mind. It's, a, it's something that you know a child's mind is, uh, when, once you do that to them, it, it's really hard to, to ever overcome that. And um, so for us to spend $800 million, $840 million, on, on DPS doing the borders instead of investing within our communities and helping us grow and making sure that we have a long-term plan for success is um, a very wasteful resources to our community. And you're right, every community is different. But as you see decline in, um, I think the, the statement was made that uh, crimes have declined because of the presence of police. And that's a correct statement because, so let's invest in our local Let's invest in our cities, where it's going to be a long-term gain, and uh, and I think then we become very resourceful at that time. So I couldn't disagree more with the, the earlier statement.
0: With um, with respect to Sealapu, you were talking in the green room that you were you were there last week. I was there last week. You know, you walk over, go down the strip, and it's it, it seems it seems a lot better. But you still talked. You, still, you know, I was talking to, to taxi drivers, to fast food workers, and they say, you know, this isn't getting reported. The government here is still corrupt. We're scared that we're going to see it all over again, and that you know whether you like it or not. Even though they're two separate cities, that is going to affect what happens in El Paso. Or at least the image of that city, just as what happens in, in Matamoros affects Brownsville and down the line. So, what is the state of uh, what's the security situation in Ciudad Juárez right now, from your standpoint? Well, I
2: feel it's a very secure area, and I do travel there quite often. And um, when I was out there last time, as I told you, I got off downtown El Juarez, wearing a suit, a hat. And I walked through the streets and shook a lot of hands and took a lot of pictures, and then walked and went over the, the, the bridge and, and walked over. And uh, it's a um, it, it's a great relationship between two cities so how our economies are, t- are tied together and how we'll continue to grow. And and if um, if we don't continue to work together, it uh, it will be very impactful to both sides.
4: Yeah, just, just a quick sure. comment on that because I, I I do think Ciudad Juarez is, sa- is safer now than it was. Uh, certainly 18 months, two years ago when you, when you kind of spiked. But, but as border communities, and I'm speaking more from the Mexican perspective, and this is something that, that I've commented on and perhaps Carlos can pick up on it. Uh, occasionally there is a relatively, there's relative safety because that corridor is no longer being contested by an incumbent cartel. And when there are turf battles going on, that's when you see the violence kind of spike. And so uh, the, the the relative calm of Juarez may be because you have an incumbent cartel that is not fighting off another one for, for that uh, for that corridor. You've seen that phenomenon in Matamoros and you've seen that uh, in other communities along the border, which really speaks to how important it is for Mexico to continue to do rule of law, corruption initiatives, and institution building so that there can be a consistency that is not, is not the safety is not a byproduct of a dominant cartel. The safety is a byproduct of strong institutions that have been built up in those communities. I'll and a lo- on and, one and, of the things that, uh, because I did ask, how did how were we able to uh,
2: work together? And the, one of the largest things that's happened in Waters is that the, uh, the private sector has been involved, and the private sector has started working with law enforcement to make sure that the, it becomes a safe community. And I, I know that that's been one of the, the biggest differences that's made the difference for him is the huge private sector involvement.
0: And a, a question for the General counsel on, on uh, shifting a little bit more towards um, enforcement away from the border in immigration. Uh, as I mentioned in, in my introduction, you are a little bit more outspoken than some of your, your colleagues and counterparts on what you think the federal uh, agents should be doing at the local level. Um, I guess my, my question is, and, and you've been very vocal about getting ICE away from Travis County and, and having these immigration runs that people say you, know, you, you deport folks for minor crimes. But how else do you, do you vet the system? And what, I mean, I guess what is wrong with deporting people that do some really, really horrific crimes from, from Texas cities?
5: Well, <clears throat> this has to do with what we have discussed before. To me, the most crucial challenge is to move away from the border as a war zone okay. narrative and move towards the, the uh, border as a smart border paradigm. You know? And I think that Ambassador Garza was mentioning the example of San Diego, Tijuana. <coughs> that uh, that smart border paradigm means uh, that you have a filter, a filter that allows um, the the crossing of goods and services and and stops um, illicit activity. And my problem uh, with uh, the way that the border is being presented in, in this um, public discussion about law enforcement is that uh, I think that Texas and Mexico have, it's a very high stakes game. Uh, and we should be the first ones to try to move from the uh, narrative of the closed border to the narrative of the smart border.
0: But until that narrative has changed, and you even have Republicans saying it's it's impossible to deport 11.5 million people that are in this country that have roots. Uh, but you know, and it's it's going to be a long discussion and a long process after that if it ever does start to change that narrative that you that I think everybody agrees on. That you know the the cooperation. Until that happens, though, how do you how do you recommend catching the really really bad people and sending them back and making sure that they don't do harm to Texans? If not, if not, uh, having immigration in the jails and checking the people that are arrested.
5: Well, that's already happening. If you are in jail now and you are undocumented, right. uh, but, but you
0: want to end that program. You, so no, what's no, no, no. The, what's, no. The, what's the replacement?
5: No, what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, what is against the interest of Texas and the United States was the whole Secure Communities afraid, program, right. that meant that if you had some trouble with a local policeman, you end up in the police station, you check your fingerprints, your right. fingerprints, and then you could end up being deported. And as a consul, I saw countless dozens of cases of, uh, for example, victims of domestic violence that ended up being deported. Right. Fortunately, this administration, federal administration, has uh, changed, to some extent, uh, priorities and the criteria to apply that program. But to your question if a criminal goes to jail and is undocumented, the federal government makes sure to deport it to Mexico. I mean, it's, it's, sometimes people lose that fact, that, that people who have served their prison here, 100% of them are deported back to Mexico if they are undocumented. And,
0: and that, um, to his point, I mean, there is, there is evidence, not just anecdotal statistics, that folks that get pulled over for the traffic violation, are run through the system and they're sent back, but there's also instances of people that should not have been released and should have been deported getting out and committing horrific acts. So I think, I mean, if we don't agree on everything, at least one thing is that there are definitely some tweaks to be made to the current system, if not a complete overhaul. Um, and I want to I want to shift back to Congress and Vela because um, recently you were you were pretty outspoken about the uh, the appointment um, and the, the subsequent confirmation of Roberta, Roberta Jacobson to serve. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Garza's uh, former role as ambassador to, to Mexico, because you've been saying, I mean, you've been sounding alarm bells for uh, as, long, as long as we've been talking since you've been in the office about the State Department, quote, having their heads in the sand about what's going on in Mexico. He was so, that polite. I'm sorry? You were that polite?
4: <laughs> <laughs> so this, was, this was the
0: on-the-record conversation. He knows me a, too well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, but to that point, I guess, I guess my question is, T, is would you favor some sort of US, more US intervention, um, or even some military intervention in Mexico, because of this, I mean there's a limited capacity that the United States can tell Mexico what to do. Right, so not- so what, what exactly would you like to see happen? Yeah, I certainly
3: wouldn't uh, argue for military intervention. Uh, what I'm talking about, and, and just to kind of follow up on my point about Ciudad Juarez, uh, El Paso, and Tijuana, San Diego. <laughs> I mean, before 2010, things were really, really bad, but like the mayor says, those communities came together, and so did the US, and United States and Mexican governments to make things a lot better. And Congressman O'Rourke, who represents El Paso, um, you know, he'll tell you that people who had moved to El Paso from Ciudad Juarez because of how bad it was have now begun to repatriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's what we would, would like to see going
0: forward. What role does the State Department have in that, in that transition, though, that you would like to see em, you know, emulated in your area? Right, right? It, it's, it's a matter of more aggressive uh, foreign diplomacy. I mean,
3: um, I, I feel... Uh, like if you if, if, if you think about where John where you see John Kerry, it's usually somewhere else other than Central America or Mexico, okay. and so um, I, and, and and I mean I think there's some focus on, on Mexico. Remember, there's parts of Mexico that. It, 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 you know, that are, that are perfectly fine. Yeah. But for those of us who live by Tamaulipas, we just want to see it better. We want it back to the way it is. And, and, and I just want to follow up on another point that the amb- Ambassador Garza made, which is really important, which is the San Diego airport, because I've seen it too. Yeah. And what he's talking about um, is um, the, the, it's the Tijuana airport. The flights actually leave out of Tijuana, but if you live in Los Angeles or San Diego and want to fly into Mexico or even to Asia... Uh, you can actually fly to Tijuana, you park, the parking lot to the airport is actually on the American side of the border, right. and you go through customs and you go, your, you go to your gates and all of a sudden you're in Mexico. So it's a really, really good example of two countries working together. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's also reflective of uh, something that I think is very important to all of us who live on the border is uh, we were not meant to be separated. Right. I mean, you know, we, we, those of us who live in the valley, uh, we're American citizens. We have, and many of us for many, many generations, but we have friends and family uh, who live right on the other side of the border. And uh, historically, it's been an, a cultural interchange of social, family, and economic
0: ties. But but, but on that note, when people, um, North when when elected officials and, and business people from Texas on, on this side of the border say. Our, it's fine over here, quit lumping us over to, you know, with what's happening south of the Rio Grande because yeah, you're right, it is bad there but then you know, you, at the, in the same breath they say, well we're just one big community separated by the river. It's like, which one is it? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I acknowledge
3: the, 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 the conflict there but there's, the problem is there's no way to get away from the facts. Right. I mean, uh, the facts are that crimes, crime rates show and those of us who live there can prove that uh, we feel safe where we live um, and by the same token, um, you know, you can't get away from the fact of what has happened in Tamaulipas over the last four or five years, especially the good news is we have, uh, we, we can uh, point to history, the history of the experience in Ciudad Juarez uh, and in Tijuana uh, as an example of what we can do as two countries and as, two commun- as, as, as border communities on both sides um, to, to, to make things better. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging, uh, but um, it, it, I think there is an opportunity, I have a lot of hope that we'll move, move to that. But you began your story with um, my um, uh, position with Roberta Jacobson, and, and I'm fully supportive of, of, of the ambassador now. I'm, I'm glad she was appointed, but uh, the reason I spoke out about that was because uh, right after I entered into Congress, um, uh, Ambassador Jacobson was a State Department official, and the Ambassador Goddard and I have had this discussion before because he has a very good relationship with her. Um, and uh, she's in my office. Uh, the issue of violence in Tamaulipas is something that's very dear to my heart uh, because it's changed our way of life. I mean, um, these students that are here in front of you, um, you know, are 30 years younger than I was. The the, the, the cultural and living experience in Brownsville Matamoros today is much different than when I was their age. And I want to give it back to where it was like when I was there. And I was having this discussion, and I, uh, I felt like you know, there really wasn't, from her standpoint, a whole lot of emphasis on what was going on in, 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 in Tamaulipas. And that's why I felt it was important to speak out.
0: Uh, uh, Chairman Park, I want to follow up with, uh, with a follow-up to the discussion I had with the consul about uh, state-based enforcement. Immigration. Um, obviously, you you know you you support stricter enforcement. Um, I'm, I don't want to speak for you. I mean, that's sure. a, is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. Th- that that being said, though, the Republicans <laughs> dominate the Texas legislature on both both sides, um, both chambers. W- why why haven't sanctuary cities policies been passed yet? Why haven't there why hasn't there been a, a repeal of in-state tuition? I mean, is it, it do, do politicians go around saying, we're going to do this, and then, is it the lobby that wins behind the scenes? Is it the construction industry that knows that they're going to lose out on all this cheap labor? Is it, uh, is it the religious community that ends up stopping these bills in their tracks? Because somebody people would look at Texas on paper and say, I mean, they can go Arizona on steroids if they want to, so why hasn't that happened here?
1: So let me comment on a couple things. First of all, uh, you know, what Ambassador Garza said earlier about when Texas and Mexico, the United States and Mexico, work together for uh, the betterment uh, economically of both nations, uh, we're all we're all better off when that happens, right? And so, you know, the, the fact that we need to be intelligent with regard to the way we work together, I think, is very, very important. The the, the comments that the mayor made uh, with regard to safety and so forth, uh, I just respectfully disagree. Uh, and the reason being is, is that from my perspective, I had the privilege of being corrections chairman in Texas. And if you look at from 2008 to 2014, we had 611 thousand crimes committed by folks that were here illegally. Uh, so, it's a real issue around safety and security as it pertains to uh, those dangerous elements that come across the border. It has nothing, from my perspective as a Republican, with do, to do with uh, the beautiful communities that we have in South Texas that are wonderful places to, to live and, and to work and, and to raise a family. So, I just wanted to clarify that, uh, I think, based on the previous discussion. Um, so, to answer your question, you know, at the end of the day, as many of you all know in this room, you know, when we're at a legislative session, we have 140 days. Uh, to get uh, the people's business done, right? So we're one of the leading economies in the world, um, and we have a lot of issues uh, that we need to take up. The topic of sanctuary cities, for example, we passed a sanctuary cities bill actually a few sessions ago in the House, um, and the reality is I think that there is uh, a strong level of support for doing uh, just that, again, here this next legislative session. So uh, I do think it'll be prioritized. I do think, in fact, we will pass a sanctuary studies bill uh, here in Texas during the next session. So again, you know, with regard to whatever the topic may be, people have to understand we're in session right, as citizen lawmakers, right? So we are effectively uh, part-time and uh, volunteering, but we're only in session for 140 days. So we'll do our best to take up as many of the critical issues as we can. Uh, but I do think on the Sanctuary Cities topic that we will, in fact, uh, pass that bill next session. So
0: you're, you're talking about uh, 2011, I think, SB 9 and HB 12, I think, were the two, the two bills of HB 11. But yeah, like you said, and that was, that was what the House said when the Senate didn't pass it, right? The whole time ran out, and the mm-hmm. Senate said that about the House when the, the lower chamber didn't pass it. So, and I'm talking because there was one in the regular session one in the special session, which, um, again, a lot of folks think if the intent was really, really there it would have gone through. Uh, You want to follow up on something,
5: sir? Yeah, I want to say, from the perspective of the Mexican government, the intervention by a subnational government, such as Texas, on immigration policy is a matter of concern. Uh, Obviously, we do respect uh, the domestic policymaking process of both the federal and the state government. But in terms of immigration control um, and border security in general, I think it's a shared responsibility of federal governments. Um, we want to understand um, what uh, Texas is doing. We have created a working group with DPS to exchange information, but we need to see what the state brings to the table in terms of uh, uh, border security.
0: On, on that on that note, um, and and we've discussed that uh, migration from Mexico is at a net zero. You know, we got more people going back, but the problem in, in the last three years have been Central Americans. So with respect to, to the federal responsibility, would, would you be willing to tell uh, the Mexican government that they need to improve their southern border security to stop this flow of Central Americans from coming through Mexico and eventually to Texas?
5: Well, I, I think that there is plenty of evidence that we've done precisely that, that the U.S. and, and Mexican governments are um, committed to securing our respective uh, uh, southern borders and with that we try to do it not because the U.S. asked us in terms of our southern border, because, but because it's in our interest. Now, the matter, of course, is how you do it. Right.
0: Mayor, did you want to talk? Well,
2: I, I really believe that uh, m- when I was talking about uh, the $840 million is we're going to put $140 million this year, and what do we do next year? If we want the same thing, we have to put 180, 80, $840 million again. My idea is invest in your communities. Help them grow. Allow them to continue that once you pull away, that they have something in place. So I believe $840 million is a waste because next year you don't have anything set in place unless you do it again. So invest in your communities. Allow your communities to grow and help them do the job that they've been doing for so many years before we decided that we needed to intervene. Right, right. And that's very important.
0: And on, and on your point, I think the, the Public Safety Commission has asked for for more money for this next coming session, which is going to be shorter. because you know oil, uh, Revenues are down and taxes are down. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at next year's Tribune Fest <laughs> to see how that budget process is going. Um, the, the last question for me, and if you guys want to start lining up, I think we've got about 15 minutes left. So, um, But for Ambassador Garza, just switch and switch focus, putting put the lens back on Mexico. You have... Uh, Ciudad Juárez is about to um, have an independent candidate um, for premier. You have uh, Francisco uh, Garcia Cabeza de Vaca, who is uh, the first panista in the state of Tamaulipas. You have uh, the governor of Nueva León, who is an independent candidate. Um, you, you have these, these movements, you s- sort of see a shift, and obviously, Enrique President Peña uh, approval ratings are historically low. He didn't do himself any favors by inviting Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> maybe he thought that Secretary Clinton was also going to accept, but that didn't work out in his favor, as I've already saw. But so how long is it going to take to change the culture of what some people call corruption, in, in, at least in, the, in the, the northern part of Mexico, to actually make a difference be, to, you know, to people that live just across the river and, and see what's going on? Uh,
4: I'll try to answer that question without sort of the the history lesson of what's going on in Mexico. Because I think most people know it in in the wake of 2000, a lot more of a democratic Mexico. And then the pace of change, I think, has accelerated significantly in the last handful of years. And that's the whole technology thing, right, the social media. And so that is why I, I remain optimistic about Mexico not because of the confidence that I may or may not have in their government, but because of the confidence that I have in the Mexican people. If you look at what happened in Nuevo León in the last gubernatorial cycle, the fact that they elected a truly independent that ran none of the traditional uh, paid spots on TV or had the party resources at at his disposal, but essentially ran a social media campaign and is elected. Uh, independent of the fact whether or not he can govern, he was elected, and that says a lot for the capacity of people to mobilize and hold what they thought was a party structure that wasn't responsive, accountable. Same thing in Tamaulipas, a guy running very much into headwinds. Whether or not he can govern Tamaulipas, which I think has some real challenges, is still the open question, but the fact that he was elected. On the, on the national level in Mexico, the citizens' movements that are focusing on transparency and anti-corruption initiatives have been able to see the passage of anti-corruption legislation and are now focused on the implementation. So given the pace of the last handful of the years and my confidence in the people of Mexico to start holding their government more accountable, I think it's going to be the, one of those things that we look back on and say it happened very, very, very slowly and then all at once. And, and I think that is where we're moving in Mexico. Real challenges because of, of the uh, you know, the slow economic growth, Real challenges would happen on the energy side, but in terms of that nascent democracy, every reason to be optimistic.
0: Great. I uh, will start with questions, and, and we want to give everybody some time. So, um, just if you could just get immediately to the question, we'd appreciate it.
2: So, I'm struck by the the fact that the panel is comprised on a panel about border security and, and border safety exclusively of government officials and exclusively of men. I'm also struck by the complete absence in any of your in any of your comments about
1: the actual activities of this massive police apparatus that we already have on both sides of the border. What is is your question, sir? What do you think of police activity that is
2: predominantly geared toward economic migrants, asylum seekers who don't get asylum and who are
1: incarcerated, and a fundamentally undemocratic kind of military policing on the Mexican side?
0: Chairman Parker, I'll let you take that since you're the, the state official here.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, from, from my perspective, you know, you heard my comments earlier. I, I think what we're doing from a DPS perspective is uh, is very appropriate and very necessary. Um, you know, the Consul General uh, made a comment earlier about what is the role of Texas with regard to a federal government. My view is, and I think I speak for all of us as Republicans uh, in the state of Texas, and that is we would love to see Washington step up a- and and secure the border and take care of the issues so that we don't have to spend Texas taxpayer money. So that would be my perspective, is that there's a tremendous necessity to what we're doing with regard to DPS, and we will continue to make the investments. I thought the mayor made a great comment about making certain that we're making these investments that we're finding a way to, if you will, build, if you will, a a sense of uh, stronger communities and and something that we're standing up in addition to just the enforcement piece. And I think that's fair and something that we will look at certainly as we go forward to this next session. We will, in my opinion, appropriate uh, uh, the same level of support that we have historically. We will, in my opinion, uh, support uh, the request that's coming from DPS but I think, alongside that, I think it's a great talk about how we, in fact, grow and strengthen uh, the communities on the border it's, as well.
0: It, is it is it to the general Is it military-style policing, though? I mean, is DPS having a heavy hand down there with these with these women and children?
1: Well, I, I don't view it as military-style policing. I view it as a necessity. And again, you know, I think we are a compassionate people. Uh, you know, I think we all understand when we have children that are unaccompanied coming across. These are these are kids. And we understand that. And so from my perspective, when you see kids that are in crisis because of the situation, it makes you more, I, I think, even more ardent of a supporter and making certain that that border is secure. Uh, so that's my perspective.
2: Senator, Sir, your question? I did want to say one thing and take two seconds, yeah. that I may be an elected mayor of the city of El Paso, but anywhere I go and everything I do, I do represent and I am a citizen of the city of El Paso. So I am a citizen of the city of El Paso. And i'm very proud of that's when i sit here and represent the,
0: the people of our community and you're also in the private sector to, yeah. to his point sir your question and i'm a military veteran so Border security is extremely important to me and i'm also a tech startup co-founder um, so i personally experienced a lot of the immigration challenges that our current broken immigration system um, causes within the tech startup community um, so this question is mainly focused on representative Vela. Um, i wanted to ask you with Secretary Clinton has stated that within the first hundred days of her administration, that she will make common sense immigration reform a priority within her presidency if she gets elected. Um, So I wanted to ask you, um, what is your plan if she does get elected to ensure that this actually happens?
3: Well, I would, if she has, once we see a plan, um, I would likely be fully supportive. Uh, We tried to get comprehensive immigration reform passed in the last two. Congressional sessions, but uh, it went nowhere. Um, and, and, you know, a, a large part of that is, is there are Republican members of Congress who really do want to see immigration reform. It's supported by the United States Chamber of Commerce, uh, the American Farm Bureau, and many other business groups. Um, but what has happened um, is it's, uh, the Hastert rule is a procedural rule in the House, which I think we need to do away with. Um, You know, there's a majority of the House is 218 votes, but with the Hastert rule in place, and the the reality is Democrats used it too uh, when they were in power. um, A rule, a a bill doesn't come to the House floor, it's run very differently than the State House, unless a majority of the majority allows it to come up to the floor. So there are, uh, I think it would be very, very difficult to pass any sort of immigration reform in the first 100 days, I think it's going to take time. But I would like to take this opportunity to say a little bit about my thoughts on immigration reform. We've talked about a lot here, but um, you know, with respect to felons, the most progress, even the most progressive and liberal immigration reform plans presume that felons will not be entitled to the pathway, right? Um, so we should begin with that. But one of the major Problems, in my view, with comprehensive immigration reform efforts, um, is the idea that you would condition a pathway to citizenship on border security. I'm not suggesting we don't need um, to to uh, engage in border security efforts, um, but we're talking about two different things, in my view, because when we talk about the comprehensive, when we talk about a pathway to citizenship, we're talking about uh, seven, eight million people that are already here working. Uh, in hotels restaurants construction sites in the tech industry all across this country they're already here you did you oppose the gang of eight bill because of that that um, right I, I just have a fundamental I'm not saying at the end of the day if that's what came to the house floor and that um, comprehensive immigration reform um, uh, passed or failed on one vote right. uh, you know it'd, it'd be a tough vote but just fundamentally I have a, 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 a problem with Conditioning the pathway to citizenship on border security because I think you set the pathway up for failure And when we're talking about border security we're talking about doing something about people coming over in the future So to me it's 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 we got to approach both but not in a conditional
0: fashion Okay, and I I apologize. I missed the back mic there the first time so I'll I'll go to in the back. Yes, ma'am
5: Hi. My question to all the panelists is whether or not you agree with the idea that Donald Trump has of building a wall along the border, and if it's really realistic to send back all the uh, illegal immigrants back to their countries.
0: Build a wall? I mean, obviously, we know where Congressman Vela stands on that issue, but, you know, I'll let somebody else uh, answer that. Chairman Parker?
1: Well, look, my, my, my perspective is, you know, today you've heard all the discussion and the debate. Uh, my view is that they're really two different things, right? We talk about immigration policy. That's one topic. We talk about border security. They're another. So uh, I do think that uh, Donald Trump will be elected, and I look forward to the, the, the conversation with him about uh, how we can strengthen our country and how we can address this issue of illegal immigration.
0: Do you, do you think it's a reality to round up 11.5 million people that are already here and send them back to where they can? I, I,
1: I think I think the issue that we can all agree on are those that are criminal offenders... Uh, that that should no longer be in our country. And I think that's where you'll see consensus uh, on both sides of the aisle amongst Republicans or those that are here who have committed crimes uh, should be removed from the the state and from the country.
0: So an undocumented immigrant that gets in-state tuition here on UT campus, you would not support deporting that that student?
1: Well, again, it's a separate issue, but I'm just simply saying that my view is that there's broad consensus that we can agree on those that have committed offenses, committed crimes, that they should, in fact, be deported from the state and from the country.
4: Let let me just, I I think I can do it in six words. (laughs)
3: Uh,
4: First question, no on the fence, ineffective. No on the deportation, impractical. And no on the religious testing, unconstitutional.
0: (laughs) He went... The ambassador went freestyle there on the religion thing, but thanks for throwing that in. And I I, I fully agree with Ambassador Garza, Representative Parker. One thing we can not
3: agree with is if Donald Trump does win, I'll call you for help.
2: (laughs) You know, one of the things that's really important, it's really simple. I mean, it's the easiest thing if you're running for any public office, if you've never lived in the border, to criticize it. And until you live on the border and actually realize the impact of your words, really, that's what I find, a lot of words. If you actually, because I live it every day. And one of the promises I made when I was running for office and not knowing that Donald Trump was ever going to run for president was that my goal was to take down the walls between the two communities. And what I meant by that was, those walls we mentally have built between each other has been one of the things that's really hurt us from continuing to grow. And I made it my priority to work with what is work with Chihuahua to make sure that we continue to have a great working relationship. So we've been able to knock down those walls and to build an actual wall is not even a thought in my mind that, that would really be possible. Now, if you think about the trade between the US and um, Mexico, it's $532 billion. That's a million dollars a minute. And if you think about Texas, Texas has, which is the second biggest trade is Mexico, it's $100 billion. So we're saying, well, the trade comes through the borders. It didn't come around where the walls would be. Well, you think about relationships and you think about companies that want to invest, whether they want to be in Mexico, in the US, that will really make a difference where they want to be. And it's all about return on investment. If they don't feel safe because of what the United States is doing, it's going to really impact the future of our country. So um, I I don't see it as a possibility and we need, like I said, these are political words that are gonna hurt the growth of our community. And I'm not a very good politician and that's a good thing. I'm a citizen and I'm a guy that understands that uh, what we say sometimes hurts People and hurts the future of our country, and, and it's uh, and it kind of bothers me quite a bit.
0: Ma'am, a question. Okay. Hi.
4: Um. I'm, I was born in Matamoros, Tamaulipas, and raised in the border of Matamoros, Bronco. And I would really like to know how would you be able to work with the Mexican government, specifically with the one in the border, because we already had that um, wall that you mentioned right now of. Being afraid of the um, the American side going over to the Mexican side, and now we have the Mexican side with the peso devaluation. They're not co- coming over, not not as often because you know they don't have that amount of money to spend. But ultimately, how would you be able to work with the government on the border so that wall and not only with the military side, but more with the community sense, like in the social aspect, to eliminate that and go back to the Matamoros in Brownsville and all the the border, how it used to be. So, back then.
0: like 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 Mexico, the U.S. has. I mean, it's it's a multi-layered system of government. But I think you know. Mm-hmm. Her question: How how, how do y'all work with the municipal well, leaders I, I and and? Because I do that every day, and I was born in Mexico
2: and became an American citizen in the mid '70s. So I understand what you're talking about. But one of the priorities was how do we work with Mexico. So what I did was I went to the the mayor of and I said we have a lot of companies that really. <laughs> House in either in Waters or El Paso, and our job is to go out to them. So we traveled together as two countries, but together with one word and went to all those companies. We went to Chicago, we went to Detroit, and talked to the companies and asked them, How do we help you grow your company, not only in Waters, but in El Paso, and continue to grow? We didn't go ask for anything, we didn't go ask for new companies. We went to say, you invested in our community. You trusted us. Now, we're here as two countries with one voice. How do we work together? And we've actually been able to make a big difference and actually change what we're saying. And every time we walked into every company, they said, not only not one mayor but uh, had ever come here, but two from two different countries come in with the same voice made a huge difference. And a lot of the questions were about security and how do we work with and we're able to address
3: those. Mayor, go downstream a little bit to Brownsville. So you mentioned you're from Matamoros, because for Ambassador Garza and I, uh, it was our backyard. And, and um, it, 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 well, <laughs> for many of our friends who lived in Matamoros, we were their backyard. <laughs> uh, and you uh, go, and, and because, and a more serious point, I mean, uh, the Ambassador and I went to high school, and we had friends who were born in Brownsville, but whose parents lived in Matamoros, who came to school with us every day from elementary school, to high school, and today they're, they run businesses on both sides of the border, but the the what, what, what the important thing about to answer your question, what we've been, what I've been doing, in fact, just two days ago, I met with Governor Cabeza de Vaca, uh, you know, who's committed to helping us build these relationships and seeing what we can do about making things better, and we met with the uh, Ambassador Asada, who's the Mexican ambassador in Washington, D.C., and I'm meeting with him next week, so from our standpoint, it takes cooperation at many levels between uh, you know, the congressional offices, the embassies, and then our state and local partners on both sides of the border, uh, which we try to do. And you know, I, I, I can speak, I, I think, for the people that represent the city of Brownsville on the federal, state, and local level, and for the incoming uh, governor of Tamaulipas, and for the current mayor and uh, congressional representatives from Matamoros, um, we all want to see the same thing happen, and um, you know it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but you know we
0: we're committed to working on changing it. Folks, on that, on that note, sorry, we got no, no, to no. about thirty seconds ago for you. No,
4: no I was, I, 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 and I'm going to try to make two two points that we we have to be very careful about. Listen, I'm nearly sixty years old. I'd love for the border to be the way it was when I grew up, but nostalgia is not a policy. And we have to be very careful to recognize that because across the country we're hearing, essentially, nostalgia as a policy. Let's make America great again, whatever that, that might mean to different people. And for a lot of people, it wasn't so good a few years ago. You were African-American or LGBTG. And, all, you know. and so you have to recognize that you've got to deal with the facts as you face them today. And the border has changed dramatically. And in terms of the working relationships on the border, they, they, they're very real. I think the economic ones are very good. I think the cultural ones are very good. From time to time, the governmental ones are simply very uneven. Uh, I, I, would, I bet you'd be hard pressed to find a federal official on either side of the border that felt comfortable working many, time, many days, and I'm not going to pick on a city, you, you, all up and down the border, with local police. Right. And so we just have to recognize that there there's some interests that are very aligned. And it's going to be very situational as to where the coordination of communication works. But if we don't make it work, what we're going to have is policy driven by people, just to, to, to paraphrase, whose view of the border is informed by never having viewed the border. And so we, we, have, we have to focus on it as communities. And that, I think in that sense, it's the private sectors, it's the NGOs, it's, it's, it's really civil society that's going to have to step up and hold governments more accountable. Because in Washington and
0: the DF, they really don't get it. Folks, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you all so very much. I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions. So we're